Welcome to the Wound Masterclass podcast and on today's episode uh, we're exploring the topic of vascular etiology of pressure injuries and implications for the prevention. Um, we're looking at a, a novel concept and we're really excited to be joined by two uh, global leaders in wound care. Joining us on today's podcast we have Dr Caroline Fife, who is a world-renowned wound care physician with quite a unique vision for quality driven care. Dr. Fife is the medical director of the St. Luke's Wound Clinic in the Woodlands, Texas, and she's also a professor of geriatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, Dr. Fife has edited four textbooks and authored more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles, um, and she is, is really quite a, an extraordinary speaker. Um, and joining her, we have... Um, Mr. Frank Aviles, and Frank is one of our editorial board members on Wound Masterclass, and he's currently the Wound Care Clinical Coordinator at Nakitush Regional Medical Centre. Yeah, Frank assists with wound care practices across continuum of care and has been a member of the American Physical Therapist Association since 1990. He's a board-certified wound specialist, a certified lymphedema therapist, as well as Advanced Wound Care Certified, and serves as the chair for the Special Interest Group section of the Academy of Clinical Electrophysiology and Wound Management section of the APTA. Dr. Fife and Frank Aviles, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm excited to be talking about this with Dr. Fife. <laughs> and we're really delighted to have both of you joining us on such an important topic. And really, um, you're going to be talking, well, we're all going to be talking about the vascular origin of pressure injuries and the implications for prevention. And really, I mean, I think I'll come to you, Frank, first. Would you like to give us a little introduction into this topic? And um, bear in mind, some of our listeners will be listening to this on audio. So for any of our clinical photographs, we'll describe the actual types of injuries so that people that are you know, listening on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, can kind of get the full experience. So we just bear that in mind for this. Yes, topic. and actually, this is a, a very important topic. And I met Dr. Five uh, in 2014 regarding pressure injuries. And we did a program. It was successful. But the one thing she highlighted was that the reason why you were successful because you were hydrating patients and also there were other problems uh, that you addressed. And so since then, actually, she started making me think about the implication of the vascular system. And then she's going to share with you how she started looking at this path, which all of a sudden is a full circle because I was doing thermographic uh, work and now I'm able to see what she's actually talking about. Yeah, it's always fun when your hypothesis is uh, bolstered by the actual facts and uh, when the facts make sense in view of your hypothesis. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really, it's amazing because this topic, I guess, you know, as a plastic surgeon, this is something that's that's drummed to us in our training with Taylor and Palmer and that whole angiosome concept. But I guess for us, it's very much about, you know, lap reconstruction and the implications absolutely that that concept has in terms of importance for flap survival but here we are looking at that same concept I guess that was originally described in 1987 but looking at it now 2023 what sort of information can that concept give us in today's implications for pressure injury 
Well, I have questions for you at the end, Megan. So just be prepared. Oh my gosh. Um, what we really need is more engagement by plastic surgeons. So, um, so break hit the next few slides so we can set up this conversation a little better. And then uh, I hope we'll get back to the plastic surgeon view. Right. So, so to get started, what's interesting is we've always been calling pressure injury a localized damage to the skin over bony prominence. So we have some data now to make you think, are, are we looking at the right, I guess, uh, damage or not? But I always look at blood vessels. In my kind of work, I want to know what's happening at the capillary level because that's where everything exchanges, oxygen, nutrients, and also pick up uh, waste products. And so you're going to uh, hear us talk about the blood vessels. But I do want to ask Dr. Fife a question. Can you tell us, because I'm going to be honest with you, she was the queen of saying, no, these are not pressure injuries, they're pressure ulcers. So can you tell me why you changed your mind? Yeah, so I, I actually think I need to save the why I changed my mind for a little bit later, because truthfully, um, I you know the movie The Princess Bride, where um, the when character keeps saying, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um, so the fact is, uh, I agree with the concept of injury in the context of ischemia reperfusion injury. That's getting a little bit ahead of our conversation. That's not the context in which these were named injuries. So uh, let's let's be honest about the fact that my beef originally was that injuries are wounds, not ulcers in the ICD-10 coding book. That's a big problem. And the fact that injury implies a type of culpability that we really can't assume. So I got a lot of issues with the word injury, but the funny thing is, <laughs> I think I can confidently state that stage ones and DTIs are ischemia, reperfusion injuries or infarctions. And that's what we're gonna try to convince our, our listeners of. We'll see how, we'll see if we're able to make the case. And I think the point of this slide here uh, too is uh, if you didn't um, see it, we were talking about the capillary bed, and I want to emphasize this term localized. The philosophy has been for a long time that the pressure injuries, it doesn't matter what you call them, call them what you want, but that they're localized damage to the skin and underlying tissue, usually over a bony prominence. I want to hone in on the whole issue of localized. So you go ahead and go to the next slide, Frank, and I'll tell you what's been bugging me for 30 years. Um, one of them is that many times stage ones have very sharply defined margins. And as anybody knows who's ever gotten a little red spot from crossing your legs, if you're talking about um, pressure under a bony prominence, they are not angular. <laughs> by, uh, by nature of the way that pressure interacts, they're circular or ill-defined. They're not lined. And yet we see lines in many cases in pressure stage ones. The other thing that's bugged me for 30 years is the frequency with which the thing that happens to some of our patients is that they end up with pressure, injury, ulcer, whatever we call it on the fleshy part of their butt. There is no bone under the fleshy part of your butt. So we have, our current theory does not have explanatory value for the straight lines of some stage ones or the fact that they're non-blanching. For 30 years, I've been asking people, why are they non-blanching? 
What's the mechanism of that? Have not gotten a clear answer. I think we have one now. And then the other issue has to do with how do we then explain what happens over fatty areas? So those were my frustrations when I started this. And then I can tell you kind of the epiphany I had, if you go on to the next slide, Frank, um, just to, how I got into this. Actually, this is my son. He was uh, 22 years old, totally healthy and needed very significant uh, mandibular surgery for a congenital deformity of the jaw. He walked into the operating room, uh, totally healthy, lay down on the OR table, had a surgery for five hours, during which his blood pressure was very low because they were trying to keep his face, uh, the field from being too bloody. They wheel him back to his room and his jaws are wild, wired together. I hand him a piece of paper so he can write down what hurts. And he said, what did you do to my heel? So I take off the foam pad on his left heel and he's got the pressure injury you just saw on the previous slide. He's got that on his left lateral heel. He has a pressure injury on his right lateral ankle. So I thought to myself, oh, to do this big operation on the face, they must flip him from side to side in the middle of the surgery. The surgeon comes in and I said, you turned him from side to side during the case, didn't you? And he said, absolutely not. We are doing this delicate operation. We put these patients in the supine position and they do not move even a fraction of a centimeter for five hours. They are completely still. So then you have to ask the question, how can you get a left lateral heel problem and a right lateral ankle problem if you are proven to be absolutely still and supine for the duration of a five-hour case? Remember, he walked into the operating room. So there's only one explanation for that. Keep going, Frank, and I'll tell you what the one explanation is. Uh, and that's a five. Did you say they floated his heels? They did. They had... Uh, a uh, wedge behind his his at the Achilles. They had a wedge. So this is what he looked like. And um, that, that's the left lateral heel. Notice I had to take that nice pink foam pad off his heel to look at it when he said, my heel's killing me, what'd you do? And the right has this discreet uh, lesion right over his lateral malleolus. When I can prove he was never on his right side ever. So how could that happen? hit the next slide and maybe we can talk about the only logical explanation that you can have. And that is that when they, and so about six months later after he recovered, we went into a friend's office that had a really elegant Doppler. And I said, let's reenact. Let's put heel wedges at his Achilles. Let's Doppler his um, arterial supply, uh, which would be the lateral calcaneal artery and the lateral malleolar artery, listen to the flow mark out his anatomy, and then reenact what happens if you put a wedge behind your Achilles. So I think there are some fly-ins through this slide, Frank. It's always, you're, you're the guy in charge. But what happens is when you put a wedge behind the heel at the ankle, it's always hard to know what to call that Achilles area, then your, your feet naturally evert. And when you do that, it puts pressure on the lateral calcaneal artery or the lateral malleolar artery, which as you'll see in a moment, are, are millimeters apart in terms of their uh, anatomical um, uh, jump off point from the posterior tibial. So the only way that you can explain 
lateral heel and lateral ankle problems in someone who's supine throughout an entire surgery is that the problem wasn't local. It's not happening at the capillary level. It's happening at the level of an artery with a name that you've occluded temporarily. And that's when you have the aha moment to say, I get it. The reason you have sustained um, erythema is that ischemia reperfusion injuries cause a dramatic and profound and inappropriate vasodilation as the tissue tries to recover from an ischemic insult. Ischemia reperfusion injuries have that phase and Negan can probably tell us what that looks like from the standpoint of a surgical flap. That's the way ischemia reperfusion injuries look. And I thought to myself, how come we've never talked about this? That the only explanation you can have for non-blanching erythema has to be an IR injury. And that it only makes sense if it's not at the capillary level that it originates. Because this is the other fascinating thing. My son's sural nerve pain lasted six months. <laughs> it was weeks before his heel stopped hurting. The nerve was ischemic. We think that these are about the skin. They are not. The skin is the thing we can put our eyes on. This is happening to the skin, the subcutaneous tissue, possibly the muscle. This is a deep problem that presents with a skin lesion. And Negan, when we're done, I want to talk to you about perforators and the issue of skin versus deeper insults. But nevertheless, the only explanation that makes sense is a vascular one. But we're talking about arteries with a name. So I hit that. I don't remember how we put these in order, but same thing here. Like look at the, the right lateral malleolar artery. You do the same process. That's the red was Doppler. So I knew exactly where the vessel was. You, as you evert your feet, when you're on a heel wedge, it can put pressure right over the uh, lateral malleolar artery. So, and what I think is even more interesting is that when you talk to people who, um, nurses or, uh, who are working in the OR, they're telling us they're seeing an increase in heel pressure injuries and no one can explain why. Like it's a complete mystery. How is it possible that we do all this heel elevation and we still see heel pressure injuries? And the answer is because we're blocking off the arterial supply. It's not a local phenomenon. That is so, a so it's important for us to look proximal to the actual pressure injury as such. Exactly. And I'm going to make the same case a little bit later for a deep tissue injury that evolved into a stage four pressure ulcer. Interesting, really. So keep, and, keep going, Frank, and let's let's get to where we can talk about the anatomy. So this, this is the anatomy. So remember, I'm in the room with my son trying to figure out how is it possible that a kid who was on his back for five hours could have lateral foot problems. So I, I pull up the Angioso map that Negan knows well from publications that have been out for decades. And I look at some of the stuff that's been published too by colleagues of ours in the vascular literature. You're going to talk about some of that, I think, uh, Frank. And looky here, the, um, the uh, perineal artery uh, branches off into the lateral calcaneal or the lateral malleolar arteries. And the departure point for those two vessels are millimeters apart. So it was just a slight difference in the location of the wedge that caused him to have a lateral heel issue on one foot and a lateral malleolar on the other, but absolutely because of where the wedge was placed at the back of his Achilles. Hit a couple more fly-ins and you'll see what I'm talking about, right? I showed this as if it was the same foot, but they were two different feet. So, so that to me says it's not local. 
And it has to be an ischemia reperfusion injury because that's the only way you can explain, by the way, what we didn't mention, Negan might be able to, to um, enlighten us a little further, the idea of this straight line, we're going to show um, a couple of one of the maps in just a second, but your whole body is a three-dimensional um, puzzle uh, of, of three-dimensional structures, uh, tissue blocks supplied by arteries and veins with names. So, and there are maps that tell you every, pick a point, any point on your body, we know the artery and the vein that provide the, the perfusion to the muscle, the subcutaneous tissue and the skin to that section of your body. And so it makes perfect sense that stage ones are ischemia reperfusion injuries. And I have to add one other thing that's fascinating. So his surgery is on a Friday afternoon, which means of course, the ostomy nurse came to see him on a Monday. Well, by Sunday night, he had blanching over these areas. They were absolutely non-blanching erythematous areas for about 48 hours. By the time the ostomy nurse comes to see him, she puts her finger on it, they blanch, and she says, these aren't pressure injuries. So they, they, they're not hospital-related events. So they did not get reported because she said it's blanching and therefore it's not a stage one. And so I didn't, I wasn't going to argue with the poor woman. Uh, she was doing her job, but our problem is that that non-blanching as an ischemia reperfusion injury has a time limit. <laughs> After some period of time, if the tissue recovers, it goes away. And so whether it's blanching or non-blanching is totally going to be dependent on the point at which you visualize this in relation to relieving the ischemia that caused it. Right. And just let's recap just for our listeners in case they're sort of unclear about the different stages of pressure injury. So what we're talking about at this stage is that pressure one, that stage one pressure injury, essentially that non-blanchable erythema. And those are what you showed us on the slides. And obviously, if that's left, then we're progressing onto the stage twos, which are then partial thickness skin loss, which is then more evident. So and I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things that's problematic about the staging system is that it's not meant to be progressive. Stage ones don't progress to stage twos. Stage twos don't progress to stage threes. They, stage threes don't progress to fours. Um, when it was designed, it, it's a visual staging system that was only meant to describe what the person sees at the time they evaluate the patient. But I, I want to make sure we get back to what you were saying, Negan, because I'm going to make the case that we have a horrific ICD-10 coding problem <laughs> in the way that these are described. Uh, I'm going to leave out twos for a while, and we'll just keep with our discussion of the so-called stage ones. But I think we can make a powerful case that the so-called stage ones pressure injuries are ischemia reperfusion injuries. And that means that whether you see them as blanching or non-blanching is gonna be dependent on the time course uh, over which you examine them from the initial insult. And we're not talking about the capillary bed as the origin, we're talking about a vessel with a name. And if, if you haven't had gross anatomy, the importance of saying we're talking about a vessel with a name is hard to understand. I think we've got a couple of pictures of maps to get there, but. This idea that it's sort of like just crossing your legs and that red spot that you have when you cross your legs, if you just left your legs crossed long enough, then it would be non-blanching. I'm not convinced that we could make that happen without the uh, without affecting a vessel that supplies that area that has a name. Keep going, Frank, and let's 
because I want to get to the thermography. So this is just a, an anatomical description of it. This is a three-dimensional block of tissue. Took this right out of one of the angiosome publications. It has an arterial inflow and a venous outflow. And the reason I think that's important is, as Negan knows as a plastic surgeon, if you do a flap and you lose the venous outflow, your flap can die just as easily as it can if your arterial inflow is lost. It just looks different. It gets engorged, and, and then there's a very messy... <laughs> stage that it goes through because of all the oxygen free radicals going on there. Whereas when you have an arterial occlusion, the tissue gets pale, you have this very well-defined infarction that happens on a different time course. So I can't tell you in some cases, whether we're talking about arterial or venous occlusions in some of the pictures we're going to look at, I'm going to leave the door open to that, but flip through a couple more slides, Frank, for those that are watching. The point I wanted to make in this illustration, um, one more click, Frank, is that if you cut either one of those so that the tissue dies, what you see to your eyes might be an area of dead skin at the top. But in fact, if you think about it three-dimensionally, like the slide you were just pulling up, you think about what happens with a tree. If you lose a limb of a tree, you lose a three-dimensional block of leaves. So you visualize it as a whole in the canopy of the tree, even though you may have lost. And, and how big that hole is very much depends on how far out on the tree limb you've lost the tree limb. If it's just right towards a few little uh, constellation of leaves, then it's very small. If you hit a, a, a tree branch that's close to the trunk, you can lose a quarter or half of a tree. So we're not arguing that it's the vascular tree, we're only discussing where along the vascular tree the problem occurs. But what we're not doing is picking individual leaves off a tree. It's not happening at the level of the leaves. It happens further back along the tree where the trunk is, is deprived of flow. I don't know if that was visually helpful if you're not listening. So as Negan knows that the, there have been this angiosome map has been described for many decades. I picked uh, sort of the Sentinel article from uh, Taylor in '87, but you know it's not new information here. Um, so uh, you can actually pull up these papers and look at any place on the body and say, "Oh, what's the name of the artery that was involved to cause this?" And the thing that was so shocking, remember, I'm still sitting in my son's hospital room saying it can't be possible that that this is an angiosomal thing and nobody's observed that up until now. It just isn't possible. So I decide I'll pull up some photographs of deep tissue injuries in stage fours and ask myself, can I find any of them that can't be explained by the infarction of a named vessel on the angiosome map from this 87 article? And I couldn't. And I looked at over a hundred pictures. So I would issue the challenge to the listeners, uh, you know, use the link to get to uh, this uh, reference. In fact, Negan, let's make sure people had, can access the link to this famous article, see the map, find a, a deep tissue injury, which we're gonna talk about in just a moment, or a stage four that can't be described by the loss of one of these named vessels. I would challenge somebody to figure it out. 
That's that's such a seminal paper. And actually just, you know, Caroline and Frank, just to recap for our listeners again, for those that may have missed it, an angiosome essentially is that anatomical unit that has skin, subcutaneous tissue, fascia, muscle, and bone. And it's got a named source artery and a named source vein. And quite rightly, as you said, Caroline, any blockage, whether it's in that vein or artery, can affect perfusion to that specific angiosome as such. And quite rightly said, there were named angiosomes. So in the instance of your son, for instance, you mentioned the lower limb. Obviously, you know, they've got distinct angiosomes of the lower limb from the significant vessels that supply the lower limb. And, um, you know, we're interested to hear more about, you know, your views on this. Well, it turns out, as Frank's going to show you some thermography, because he's going to pick this theme up a little bit more in terms of uh, a way to validate this observation. You know, I'm just using my eyes saying, there's only one way I can explain this. He's going to use some technology to demonstrate what we see from that standpoint. But there are angiosomes on the buttock. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, uh, Frank, um, uh, I don't know if I should confess this or not, but I I took a Doppler and I did an arterial uh, I, I did an arterial Doppler of my derriere, and had my nurses mark the location of the audible Doppler signals of my superior gluteal and inferior gluteal arteries. Uh, if you have friends or colleagues that you know well enough to do this with you can hear the vascular flow to areas where we see pressure injury ulcers form. The, I will submit to you the angiosome concept works just as well in other areas of the body and you can even Doppler the arterial supply to those areas. Just let's say one caveat for our audience, don't try this one at home because that- <laughs> It's a little hard to get twisted around and, and we're gonna assume that that there's, there's no inappropriate uh, uh, activity going on. We have to be so careful about everything we say now. Uh, no, I would, it was and most also, <laughs> and also advise your uh, listeners not to send those pictures to your friends without telling them what's coming. <laughs> yes, exactly. Although it's oh, entirely possible that that has happened. Um, We're going to have some a disclaimer on this podcast. Exactly. But the point is, angiosomes, it's not limited to the lower extremity. I think that's where because, Megan, you know, you and you as a plastic surgeon think about angiosomes. I know you think about the calf because that's a pretty popular area for a rotational flap. But, you know, when you're thinking about it, you're far more likely to be thinking about the trunk um, because that's probably where you're doing your finest work. Our vascular interventional colleagues have started to pay a lot of attention to the lower extremity angiosomes because it's obvious that they can specifically identify the branch that's affected, not just the large vessel. Frank's going to talk about that too, I hope. But we just are silly if we think that this map concept, it, it's head to toe. So that's why I said I went through decades of photographs and couldn't find a pressure ulcer that couldn't be identified by the distribution of one of these uh, named vessels. And that photograph that you showed, Caroline, was very distinct edges, wasn't it? It was, you know, there was no blurring of the edge. So that would fit very much with your with your theory. Exactly. There, and unless you've been lying down on a triangular cookie cutter, <laughs> you just aren't gonna get it. I mean, we we do see the indentation from um from devices. It's not that that doesn't happen. I don't want to imply that other mechanisms can't happen. And we've all seen, you know, I've seen 
truck driver is pulled out of an overturned truck after many hours with the indentation of their snuff box on their derriere where they had it in their back pocket. Uh, Southerners know what a snuff box looks like, but when they sent me the picture, I said, I know what he had in his pocket. So it's not that that can't happen. It's just that you can tell things that aren't, that don't appear uh, you can tell things that are devices if there's an indentation of a device, but absent that, you shouldn't have lines. The only lines in the body are defined by vascular territories. And the reason they may not be distinct lines is if you have somebody with vascular disease, as an example, uh, over time, different angiosomes will try to compensate for the loss of their buddies. So the body will do collaterals trying to help regions that are in trouble that takes time. My son was 22. He had very straight lines in his angiosome map because he had no pre-existing vascular disease. There'd been no reason for him to develop collateral circulation ever. Right. right. And I guess there's also the scenario, I guess, dialysis patients or patients that have calcification in vessels. And again, okay, in those types of patients, perhaps the angiosome concept will just need to be taken with you know a slight pinch of salt but it still is real it's just that you might not see defined edges quite such perfect edges because the your neighboring angiosome is trying to help a little bit yeah and as i listen to you dr five this has a bigger implication because if we're able to recognize it first i mean we all learned that if you have a stage one pressure injury you offload it so in your son's case it could have been putting and keeping that wedge underneath it making it worse that's so, the, exactly. That's the reason this is important is if you think it's local, then what are you going to do if you see a problem with the heel? You're going to stick something at the back of the Achilles and say, here, let me help with that. Uh, so that's why we have to think anatomically in ways that we never have before. Because I, I, I gave a, a talk similar to this to a group of nurses and they said, but it's still pressure, right? It's like, I'm not denying that pressure is involved. It's where the pressure is. <laughs> It's not necessarily right over the skin changes that we're looking at, and we'll miss the opportunity to have better and newer interventions if that's what our mindset is. But, you know, the other reason this is so vital, Frank, is you proved this from a clinical standpoint when you implemented uh, a sepsis bundle that had people who could drink being asked to orally hydrate. Well, that that's a vascular thing. When you, when you prevent dehydration, you raise blood pressure. <laughs> right. So we are missing this whole generation of mitigation strategies that are going to be based on uh, expanding vascular volume. And right. the reason it happened to my son in the OR is they were intentionally keeping his mean arterial pressure at less than 55. Like that is really low. Uh, right. in, in, in a, an older adult, that might have been enough to make them have trouble remembering their social security for a couple of months. So, right. and, and you know, the statistics says not to have a bloody field, right? Which well, is such an old, an old kind of fashion way of, of anesthesia is that keeping the blood pressure low to keep the surgeon happy yeah. so that there's no blood loss. Yeah. Right. And I do want to add when you look at the clinical part of it, there's studies way back then that talked about if you hydrate somebody, you decrease pressure injuries by 50%, but also you decrease UTIs and um, other problems. So vascular is, you know, is important. That's why we wanted to talk about the ischemia reperfusion and this angiosome map in the context of better mitigation, because there is a, um, you know, with, despite all the 
success in decreasing pressure injuries, um, particularly in hospitalized patients. There is a we've we've hit a, a, a glass ceiling. We've hit a place where we're still having about 10% of them that are bad, despite everything we've been doing. And then we look at each other and say, well, we were planning on getting to zero with this list of interventions that we've been doing that clearly don't work sometimes. Well, that must mean that our explanatory, the, the reason that we have our paradigm for their formation, we're missing something. Because if we're doing all these things and we still can't stop them, then there's got to be a factor that we're not addressing with our current strategies. And if we addressed it, we might be able to bend that curve. Keep going, Frank. All right. So I'll let you talk about you want. Did you want to talk about that ischemia reperfusion yeah. paper? Yes. Yeah, so um, again, uh, Dr. Five has been challenging me quite often. And this is a paper that I wanted to find out more about what Dr. Pipe was talking about. And actually, this is from 2011, and it does talk about uh, reperfusion injuries. And they suggested that the hypoxic ischemic tissue occurs early on uh, following a period of ischemia. And this is where Dr. Pipe and I have been talking a lot, because we recognize that if that um, pressure proximal is too long, then the ischemia can lead to tissue death. And so if you reestablish that, then you'll have the consequences of reperfusion injuries. And so at the same time, I went back to my data worth of three years of thermography, and I was able to pick out, you know, I, I think Dr. Five has a valid point. So just well, to go back, Frank, I just want to read that citation for people that are listening instead of watching. It's an Ostomian Wound Management article from 2011, February. Um, uh, and uh, that's uh, entitled Ischemia Reperfusion Injury Induced Histological Changes Affecting Early Stage Pressure Ulcer Development in a Rat Model. Um, so the reference will be available if you access the, the deck after. And for the listeners, we'll be adding into the comments all the key papers that we talk about today. So, Yeah, and, and the last quote that I pulled from the article stated that Reperfusion injury may be an important mechanism in pressure ulcer development, and so, yeah, so in other words, this, it's not a newsflash for for more than a decade. We we could have been talking about this, right? Right, right. So this brings me to the next uh, level, talking about thermography, and I just have to explain a little bit more of what you're looking at um, and describe it. So anytime. Uh, you're using long wave infrared thermography, you're using a specialized camera to pick up the thermal energy being radiated from the body. And that's an invisible light that we're looking through. And so anytime I take an image, I'm looking for a normal scale, which it looks like in this on the left side, you'll see positive one to negative one. That's what should be normal for skin. And so you're pretty much looking at blue, green, and yellow hues when you're looking at this patient. And anything above zero, you're looking at hyperperfusion, meaning more hot. And if you're looking below, you're looking at cooler temperatures. Now keep in mind, we're looking at the energy being derived, but we describe it in temperature. Um, so this is a commercially available device that you've been exploring in a clinical setting to try to get more understanding of the perfusion state of a lower extremity. Did I say that right? Yes, and actually in 2020, they reached out to me. They wanted me to use it for pressure injury. 
and I took it to a different level. And this is why I can help you explain some of the things that you see. Um, it's non-invasive and you don't need to be in a research lab. This is something that clinicians could use with some training, just to right. be clear. Yeah. Right. And it's a snapshot. You take a picture of it and you got an instant image to guide you in the right direction. And this is a normal image. And so, are, those, again, are those colors, are they relative to a norm somewhere else on the body? Um, so what you're looking at is, good question, what you're looking at is um, you're looking at temperature based on a nearby healthy area. So nothing's going to disturb my reading because I'm looking at a reference point in the body not using ab absolute temperature. So, um, and, and so maybe- so Would you look at the uh, opposite leg or would you look at the, at the torso? Maybe- So what I do is- those weeds. What, what I like to do is stay away from the area I'm looking at because if it's inflamed or uh, ischemic, I don't want to um, capture the wrong uh, coloration. So I look at a healthy area nearby. In this study, I'm using the patient's hand as a uh, as a reference point to give me the reading. Okay. So did I answer your question? Yes, yes. Uh, okay. But those are great it's questions. It's going to be hard if people aren't looking, but we'll try to convey what, what we're seeing on these wild-colored images. There you go. You know, I don't want to go into too much detail because we'll be here two hours. And yeah. Yeah, but But let's look at this patient. For example, and again, after the talk about um, looking at reperfusion injuries in stage one, I went back and I found a stage, what, what was labeled as a stage one. So on the left side, you see the, the picture of, of a the red heel. And on the right side, you'll see the image and the thermographic image. And as you can see, it's orange. So it looks warmer. Now, in the early days, I would look at warmer as seeing it as more inflammation, but let's keep it simple. So really what we're going to be looking at is blood flow, okay? So it's hotter. And it wasn't until I was challenged, because Dr. Five is great at challenging you, that I went back and I looked, that's inflammation. But this kind of explained that when you have arterial being stopped, occluded for a little while, and you see this, it tells me that you have venous engorgement in that area. And so this is one that if I have to consider reperfusion injury, we've gone through that ischemic process. Now we got blood flow and now the, you know, the vasoconstriction and the reactive oxygen species is creating this kind of look on this. So I'm going to rephrase what you said and then hopefully Negan will make sure that we're staying honest. You're looking at temperature and an increase in temperature could be due to a change in blood flow, an increase in blood flow. You would expect a decrease in blood flow to make things cooler. So if you see an increase in blood flow, we can't know for sure what exactly has caused it. It could be inflammation. It could be ischemia reperfusion injury where the vessels have inappropriately vasodilated. But a logical explanation in the case of a stage one pressure ulcer is that it's the vasodilatory phase of an ischemia reperfusion injury. Right, right. Well said. And, and so, so now we're looking at, because a lot of these may show cool ischemic or what we may think is ischemia, but we're looking at hypoperfusion. So um, this one goes a little bit more of explaining why it's, it's warmer. 
Yeah, so uh, yeah. the slide here is uh, Chris Adinger gave me this one. So um, thanks to him. But as everyone knows, he's a very known and loved vascular surgeon, and he's got an anatomy lab, and he will often do uh, injections in cadavers to define the vascular territory of certain vessels. And the reason I thought this was interesting because he's injected the calcaneal branch of a cadaver with a bluish dye. And uh, in, in the photograph here, it shows this incredibly well demarcated uh, area uh, that's sort of a cap on the heel of a cadaver that is the territory of the calcaneal branch of the posterior tibial artery. And so I just want to point out the fact that that the vascular surgeons understand territorial flow, but it would be possible if someone had a, 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 a wound or a, whatever we're gonna call these things on their heel. I think the knee jerk reaction for most clinicians would be to say, look, they have a pressure injury. That in fact, in this territory, they could just as easily have an occlusion of the calcaneal branch of that artery. And so, I do worry how often we look at feet and say they have a pressure ulcer, a pressure injury on the lateral foot, on wherever, name it, the heel. And yet that area could be perfectly defined by the uh, angiosomal map as ischemia of a named vessel. I am worried we blame some things on the feet, on pressure, uh, thinking that it was patients who just had their heel against the bed for too long, when in fact, it's a vascular territory that's been occluded. And this actually was a really good reference. I think this was the follow-up in PRS, if I'm if I'm correct, from 2006, where I think uh, Dr. Ettinger looked at 50 cadaveric dissections, and he was actually looking at the implication of angiosomes on, I guess, limb salvage in terms of reconstruction and, and the implications that those angiosomes had. And he looked at those sort of six specific named source artery and veins. Um, and that, you know, in this image that you can see, obviously our listeners won't be able to see it, but it's looking at the calcaneal branch of the perineal artery and essentially showing that vascular distribution. So um, yes, obviously, so thank you for sharing this paper, but how can we relate this now more closely to prevention of pressure injury? So maybe Frank, your next slide is gonna answer that for us. So let me, um, again, this yeah, is the evolution. Yeah, we were just evolution. making a point here that if you saw that on a patient, you'd, you'd say, we just flashed a clinical slide there. You'd say, oh, they have a pressure injury. But in right. fact, that could have been a vascular occlusion. Um, right, so for our listeners, just to be aware that Think broadly when you're looking at a patient with a so-called pressure injury, pressure ulcer. I mean, I, I still call them pressure ulcers. I know we're, we're not supposed to, but yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But you're going the wrong to, direction yeah, on the slides. <laughs> so, so I'm going to answer her question and then we'll come back to this. So, so when it comes to prevention, you know, this is a patient actually re recreated the reperfusion injury. But if I look at a thermographic image, if you see the picture on the bottom, it tells me that's really cooler. So now they're in an ischemic response. So we have to um, change that. And um, if they're on the top, then they're already in the basodilatory phase. So knowing what phase they're in, it can help you guide the treatment. But you know, a study that we did, and I'm gonna show you 
this one thing real quick. We'll go back to it. This is where Caroline and I started talking about hydration. And so what we did was we started implementing, um, looking at malnutrition on day one, and then having dietary go out right away and implement all these things. And it was not just about turning, it was about making sure patients um, have nutrition and also hydrated. And on the right side, I'm gonna enlarge that, uh, the red line was the number of pressure injuries we had. And then the green was the wound care consult, the blue was dietary. But you can see that when dietary consult started going upward, the pressure injuries went down. And this is where we started looking at <clears throat> with Dr. Fife that maybe hydration is what's helping these patients prevent pressure injuries, which go along with this reperfusion injury that Dr. Fife has explained. Yes, I think that's a great point, Frank, um, which is that um, if we're right that these are named vessels, uh, then the thing that we aren't accounting for in our current prevention protocols is your hydration state or your whether it's your mean arterial pressure, whether it's your lowest diastolic, um, th those are all measures we know are relevant in ischemic events because we know that from the brain, we know that from a lot of other models and we can't expect the peripheral tissues to be different. They just may be able to tolerate more or less of an injury. But low cardiac output, uh, my theory about the reason that really low albumin matters so much may be that these are venous occlusions in some cases and uh, the oncotic pressure really matters on the venous side. But the use of vasopressors, people who have a fever or low mean arterial pressure, we know lowest diastolic is a factor. Anything that decreases your oxygen carrying capacity like anemia, those are all risk factors for uh, ischemic uh, tissue. And so if you think about our current pressure ulcer mitigation strategies, they don't address any of these. <laughs> you know, I realize there's some things you may not be able to fix. Uh, I mean, you could give someone something for their fever. Um, sometimes you can fix anemia. We tend to allow permissive anemia a lot more now than we used to, which may be one of the reasons that we have so many problems. But our current pressure ulcer mitigation strategies don't target any of these physiologic variables. I think it's fair to say we are missing this in our conversation. And I want to add something. Sorry, go ahead, Frank. I, I want to add something. I'm going to find a slide. Okay. You asked about prevention. And so I was in hyperbarics one day and we, um, a patient was going into a hyperbaric treatment for something unrelated. But when I looked at his heel, he had a, a pressure injury on the lateral heel. And that's where the thermographic image that you see on the left, it's that darker or the orange coloration, which let's just hypothetically call that increased circulation, whether it's venous or so. But then after the patient was removed from the treatment two and a half hours later, look what you see on the right side is actually the, what I call the center point of where that injury was. And you can see I'm normalizing the temperature in that patient. So if we find that these are reperfusion injuries, just like with regular hyperbaric, there's reperfusion injuries, we call them crush injuries, we're able to reverse some of the effects. So this is just one of the cases that I ran into while uh, talking to Dr. Well, hyperbarics has been used for failing flaps for decades. So we know that uh, angiosomal tissue <laughs> Uh, tissue that, that the ischemia that be defined by a specific angiosome can benefit from hyperbarics. 
depending on the delay and a lot of other factors. But that's, it's always nice to have a, a you know, your thermography keeps uh, telling us that we're not crazy. And I think, Frank, that, that image you showed of thermography, the, that planter view where the clinical images were very similar, yet the thermographic images were were different I think is is totally in support of your theory of this angiosome concept but can I ask you both obviously with COVID um, and you showed that risk factor list yes absolutely so obviously COVID can affect all of these um, can increase all of these risk factors and we've seen a huge surge in pressure injuries during COVID so what are your feelings I guess you know Frank and Caroline what are your feelings in terms of COVID and how that tallies in with this angiosome concept COVID is the uh, perfect storm times two for any factor that can produce ischemia. And then uh, what we really saw that was both fascinating and awful was what happened when we put people prone because there's so much less uh, padding between them and the areas where a, a named artery might have pressure. Um, the, and the implications of them over the ribs or the hips or the face are quite different. But the other thing that happened early on in COVID is we had patients on very high peak on their ventilator. So, Megan, you can probably explain that better than I can. But when you're raising the a, a positive pressure, you're reducing your venous uh, flow. <laughs> and so uh, you're reducing your flow everywhere that it's the perfect storm for a pressure-related problem, especially in those early days of prone patients on, on high peaks. And then add to that anemia, hypercoagulability, vasopressors, uh, and low blood pressure. The, the idea that we would somehow blame hospitals for, and this, by the way, I want to, is a very valid point. There is a, a sort of general idea that all pressure ulcers are preventable and that when they occur, it's, occur, it's the result of bad care. Uh, words to that effect are said by documents that the National Quality Forum puts out, at least that's a big quality organization in the US, with the implication being, in fact, the National Quality Forum has a statement, pressure always ulcers are always the fault of poor care, always, and that they all should be prevented. That's simply not true clinically for anybody who takes care of really sick patients. There are patients who are in shock, on vasopressors, very low perfusion. They, we save them. And in the US, our reward is for the hospitals to get sued over their pressure injury. So the other thing that I would like to see come out of this, although it may require more animal research to do it, is to identify the thresholds below which we can't be assured of keeping the tissue alive. And then we can establish those thresholds, whatever they are, we can have pressure ulcer prevention strategies that say, you need an oxygen carrying capacity of X, you need a mean arterial pressure of Y, you need a, your lowest diastolic to be above X. And if we can't do it because the patient is too sick, then that by definition is a medically unpreventable pressure injury. We would have defined medical unpreventability. So it's not about who's got the best uh, expert witness. Uh, we have parameters that are objective where we can say this person was too sick for us to achieve a, 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 a tissue perfusion that could be sustained. That's where we need to go at least to help with some of the unfair litigation that's happening. 
I do want to add uh, to that statement. Uh, I, I also look at it from a different perspective. You know, whether it's COVID or not, you know, we're living longer, we're having more diseases, comorbidities, but the statistics are there to show that if you're going to the hospital, over 50% of the patients are already malnourished. And then when you start looking at who's breaking down the age category, these are the patients that don't want to drink any more fluid because they don't want to go to the bathroom extra, or maybe they're in a, in a home that they don't get the hydration. So you're adding all these compounding factors to this list. You're going to break open at some point. But I think, Negan, we really need to emphasize what Frank showed uh, in this study that he did on oral hydration, where, you know, if oral hydration can dramatically reduce the pressure injuries of a hospital, like you talk about something that's simple to implement and inexpensive, but it's not part of our pressure injury prevention protocol, unless we're talking about hemodynamic factors, because it's not local. So that's why we have to get away from local and understand the vascular importance of these things, the hemodynamic factors. And at that point, everybody goes, oh, hey, we should have them drink. Oh, hey, maybe we shouldn't keep giving them their blood pressure medicine while they're dehydrated and recovering from pneumonia because we'll drop their blood pressure further than it needs to be. Those are things that are implementable without rocket science, and we just aren't talking about them. Right, absolutely. And, you know, this insight into this looking for, for other explanations um, is, is really important. It's something that's really been um, neglected, I would say, in the last few decades. And as you say, it's all been trained to say that if, if an individual gets a pressure injury, it's completely to do with the way that they were cared for, nursed, etc. And if we're looking at patients in the ICU setting, where they've got two nurses, where they're being turned regularly, those patients are still developing pressure injury. And I'll and tell you, Megan, I, I have a bias about this. This is my personal feeling is that physicians have been very content to have the nurses be responsible and blame them when it doesn't go well and say, it's on the butt, it's not my job. But if we could deliver the message that we're talking about hemodynamic factors, tissue perfusion, uh, those are things, uh, angiosomes, <laughs> doctors should understand that is what we do, <laughs> that we have a part to play. As long as the only thing we're talking, only thing, I don't mean that I mean that minimally, but as long as the conversation is limited to uh, turning and keeping patients dry, then, it, then we're going to blame the nurses. <laughs> the day that we say it's about that patient's hemodynamic status Doctor, here are the things you could do to make that better. Now we're all in it together. And we might be able to really move the needle on this if we could get to that level of understanding. And absolutely. And looking at the pre-admission kind of paperwork as well, there are some questions that are asked to try and determine who is a high risk for pressure injury. Um, certainly looking at individual risk factors in terms of mobility, in terms of other risk factors that traditionally were associated with an increased rate of pressure injuries. But perhaps these factors, which you're um, highlighting here on this slide, which is that low cardiac output, conditions that might cause low albumin, vasopressors certainly, fever, low mean arterial pressure and also that decreased oxygen carrying capacity, some of these can be flagged up quite early in that patient journey rather than waiting for obviously exactly. that pressure. These factors that. are not on the Braden. <laughs> and right. we know that there are patients who have a normal Braden and they have horrible pressure injuries. 
we know that there are patients who have a bad brain and they do well. There's something missing on the current assessments, and I would postulate that it's their vascular status that we're missing as a critical factor. Can I add, um, you know, when you look at pressure injury prevention programs, you rely on the visual assessment. And I've shown and I published uh, an article, you know, when you had darker skin, nursing homes with darker skin had a higher incidence of pressure injuries because of the skin. But when you talk about risk factors and all that, that's what I'm using thermography for. Because like I said, I can see either the warmth or the coolness before that I can see it. And so now we can take factors. On day one, we can say this may be under current terminology, I could say this is a deep tissue injury. So it saves the hospital money later down the road because I'm seeing it weeks or actually, let me just be, um, I'm seeing it before the injury happens. So we can address so it. So it's visually it, apparent on the skin. Yeah. And I think so. the other thing Frank's thermography is bringing up is the fact that we keep thinking that stage ones are skin deep. They're not. His thermography is telling us they're not about the skin. They're about the tissue under the skin. Right. It's like an iceberg. Um, right. I, I know we're, we're running short of time, but I would like to talk about the buttock pressure injury, if we can, just really quick, because we've done a really good job flushing out these issues. Um, and so... I think I'd like to show some, I'd like to get people thinking about the vasculature of the buttocks a little bit more. And some of these are gonna be hard to convey without being able to see them. But uh, the in addition to what happened with my son, the other epiphany event I had was this 42 year old man, very obese. I mean, he, yeah, he was in his forties, but he had a BMI of 42. And he had multiple comorbid conditions in uh, surgery for his coronary artery bypass for five hours, mean arterial pressure in the 50s, hypotensive in the ICU for 12 hours. Post-op day two, they roll him over and they see a deep tissue injury on the fleshy part of his buttocks here by the time this photograph that you can see, uh, it's um, he's got an SR over them. So he's got an unstageable pressure uh, injury. But the point is, it's on the fleshy part of his buttocks uh, on either side of his gluteal cleft. And this is not an uncommon place to have a pressure injury, but there's no bony prominence. Keep keep moving along, Franks, in the interest of time. Um, there's no buttock bones. Uh, so we have never been able to explain how you end up with a pressure ulcer, uh, go ahead one more, Frank, uh, for the fleshy part of your buttocks, which is not logically over any part of your uh, uh, pelvis. And so unfortunately, um, go back one, Frank, this uh, gentleman had uh, a sternum begin to, he had his cabbage, his sternum began to fall apart. So in addition to this problem with his buttocks, his sternum is open. And as often, my, my experience with these is dreadful that as we let their pressure injury on their buttock evolve, they get colonized. Eventually their open sternum gets colonized and then they die of sepsis. So I said, let's have a different story. Let's do something we don't normally do. Let's have plastics take this man to surgery and debride a still evolving pressure ulcer of his buttocks and clean it up. And then we can put negative pressure with uh, instill on it and keep it all clean. And when the plastic surgeon did that, he called me and said, yeah, no big deal, but there was something weird. On either side of his sacrum, there were these holes that were full of clot. 
And it's hard to see the orientation here. In a couple more slides, you'll see that orientation of where these holes are in relation to where the problem is. But that's where the holes are when his ulceration was on the fleshy part of his buttock on either side of the gluteal cleft. In other words, those holes where, his where the parasacral vasculature is. The parasacral artery is the one that supplies the fleshy part of your buttocks. So the only thing that would explain how he ends up losing tissue on his buttocks is pressure over his sacrum. Now, it's not that pressure wasn't a factor. It's just that everybody's been focused on how can we make the buttock cheeks less susceptible to pressure? It's like, that's not our problem. Our problem is the origin of the vascular supply to the buttock cheeks, which happens to be over the sacrum. So just because you have sacral pressure doesn't mean you get a sacral skin change. You can get a skin change downstream. And that's the other piece that we've been, been missing about that. Um, and he remained permanently insensate over his buttock cheeks, which suggests that he infarcted those nerves that supply it. This is a tissue infarction, I guess is my point. He had a deep tissue injury that evolved into a pressure ulcer, what I feel I have to call an ulcer because I can't make sense of doing wound care in an injury uh, from a terminology standpoint. Uh, and, and even the ICD-10 code book calls them an ulcer. So keep flipping forward a couple more, Frank, just so we can finish this anatomical conversation. So that's when I said, okay, let me look at some other pressure injuries and the anatomical idea of them. So this is uh, familiar to you, Negan. This is the territorial supply to the buttock and hip. It's a little hard to envision because it's like trying to look at a flat picture of a round earth. Uh, so just to orient people, there's a purple area that's around the anus. If this person was three-dimensional and sitting, that uh, lime green color is the inferior gluteal artery that they'd be sitting on. And the, the uh, different color green there is actually the buttock cheek. So I'm just showing the point that the buttock cheek is supplied by the lateral sacrals and the superior gluteal is what uh, is a very large territory that uh, is um, between your uh, hip and your gluteal cleft. So move on. And Megan, when, when we're done, I want you to talk about those perforators because I feel like the thing we need is a plastic surgeon to dig into the issue of perforators. But the point I wanted to make is that where these vessels exit muscle, uh, these muscles, whether it's through the fascia or in between, those are pretty tight junctions. And it's easy to believe, especially if you're hypotensive, that those vessels are getting kinked at the point at which they're coming through the muscle. And as Negan knows, the muscle is more vulnerable to uh, hypoxia ischemia than the skin. The skin will, uh, the skin is alive on a cadaver for several hours. The muscle can only last a few minutes. So that's why these are, are, are forming from the inside out the way an apple rots, because it's the supply to the muscle that goes down first, and then everything else happens after that. And that's, next slide, uh, Frank. I just wanted to show some uh, different areas of the body and try to get people thinking about which vessel it is that's involved. And when you look at these anatomical things, hey, those big pressure ulcers that we see uh, over the buttock are the distribution of the superior gluteal artery. 
uh, when it's people who are seated positioning, it's the inferior gluteal artery. We can see this over and over. And we know of cases like that's the superior gluteal, uh, that's the inferior gluteal artery there. That's where that woman would be sitting on, on this if she was not lying down. And what you, the black dots that I made on her body show you the amount of undermining she has. That's the other reason it doesn't make sense that this is local. You couldn't apply pressure to her bottom locally and have it involve an area that you could stick both hands in that uh, involves the muscle and goes down to the bone. The only explanation for a defect of this size is that you lose the vascular supply. I'd love your thoughts on that, Megan. All right. I mean, absolutely. These um, these gluteal perforators are are really vital to that to the structure of and supply of tissue in that area. And Caroline and Frank and Alec, as you know, obviously the superior gl gluteal artery perforator can be used in some cases to reconstruct breasts. You know, that's how much tissue that perforator um supplies and takes with it. So if you can imagine, obviously, in terms of just thinking about it in terms of breast reconstruction, those two perforators have been well known in the literature to be used, inferior gluteal artery perforator flaps, superior gluteal artery perforator flaps. So if you think in terms of that volume of tissue that perforator supplies, then you know, in the case that you in the patient that you discussed just now, where they found clot leading up very much would fit with, you know, thrombosis of that that perforator. That perforator was no longer supplying that large area that that superior gluteal artery perforator would supply. So absolutely, these perforators are vital. They supply large volumes um, of tissue in this area. And certainly in, in some of these patients with pressure injuries of this area, we do actually use local rotational flaps and they're based on those perforator um, blood supplies to try and rotate the flaps in to try and close. And that's really for the, the grade four, uh, grade five pressure injuries in, in suitable patients that have been selected um, for surgery. So yeah. Absolutely. The irony here is that if you put your plastic surgery hat on, you know, we might ask you to fix this, <laughs> you know, find some tissue to, to, to uh, fill in this defect. But if you put your plastic surgery hat on, I think, the plastic surgeons should look at this and go, oh, I can name the artery that we lost. That is the reason you have a defect in exactly this place and exactly this distribution that affects the muscle subcutaneous tissue and skin. And right, I feel like that's, that's the conversation we've been missing. Right, because absolutely, this would be, in essence, the donor site for, the, you know, it'd be the same area of the donor, donor sites of the flaps that we harvest for reconstruction of other parts of the body. So, very much that said that's a vital um consideration particularly in this yeah so i think that's the conversation we're missing is to have our plastic surgery colleagues look at these and go oh i can tell you what vessel that is um because that just gets us back to the conversation about the hemodynamic factors and frank i think i have a couple more um slides just to talk about anatomy because i know we need to wind up but um like th these are the um, uh, various um, regions. They're a little bit more dermatomal. Sometimes you see pressure ulcers in more of a dermatomal distribution. We don't have time to talk about that. But the point is that I can look at a picture of a pressure ulcer and say, oh, I know exactly which vessel we're talking about. This one's the superior gluteal. Keep going. Frank, I'll flip through a few of them. I think I lined several up. And if I didn't, uh, it's also not very exciting for people to, to watch. But, you know, in a series of patients like 
there's the, oops, he flipped through too well because of the lag, but there was a lumbar, there was a superior gluteal, there was a, an, uh, an inferior gluteal, there was a lateral sacral. Every one of those, like there's a lumbar, can be defined. Like you could look at it and say, I know the name of this vessel. And it surprises me that nobody's done that before. As I was beginning to look through these uh, deck, remember, I'm still in my son's uh, recovery room saying, how come nobody's ever said these follow an angiosomal map and I could name the vessel every time? And that's why I issue this challenge to anybody listening. Look at the angiosome map and tell me that you've got a stage four that can't be defined by a vessel with a name. I'll be surprised. So where I got to just to kind of wind up is that stage one pressure injuries um, we think of as being skin deep because the skin is all we can see, but they often have sharp demarcations and only vascular territories have straight lines. The only thing that can explain their persistent hyperemia is that they are ischemia reperfusion injuries. And that's how I got to this point of saying, okay, I'm willing to buy the fact that stage ones, especially since if a patient's able to feel pain, they will often tell you that they hurt. We get them in paralyzed patients who can't tell us that, but if they can feel pain, they will tell us they're in pain. And that's because the visible ischemic injury is associated with non-visible uh, ischemia of the nerve. So I'm on board with saying that stage ones are actually ischemia reperfusion injuries. And that means to me that DTIs, which in my experience invariably become stage four pressure ulcers, that, that a DTI must be the opposite end of this uh, spectrum, where a stage one is an ischemia reperfusion injury where the flow has returned, which is why you have the hyperemia, and a deep tissue injury is the other end of that where you have an infarction. And they will then go on to evolve as a stage four pressure ulcer because the tissue's dead working its way from inside to outside in the classic way that we've all seen. And what that means is if you're at a DTI, it's not very likely that you're going to be able to prevent the evolution of that into a fairly horrible wound if the tissue's dead. Now, whether we can use thermography to figure out if it's dead or not, I don't know the answer. Whether there's a way we can identify the uh, hypoperfusion in time to do something about it, I don't know the answer, but if we don't start talking about hemodynamic factors, we won't even be trying. Well, I will tell you with all the work that I've done, yes, on the deep tissue injuries, we see some that show really cool, which again, if you look at coolness and relate that to ischemia, which in the literature, they relate coolness with thermography as ischemic, then yes, you can look at it before the eye sees it and start a new implementation program to hopefully make that better. How do, how do both of you feel about other adjuncts such as subepidermal moisture measurements and other sort of investigations that can be done? What are your feelings on those? I don't know enough about subepidermal moisture, but uh, if it doesn't relate to vascular perfusion, I'm going to not be excited about it. Yeah, I don't you usually look. I don't usually look at it. Um, we actually were looking at doing a grant for a study, and um, we, like Dr. Five said, we're looking at you know is that skin cooler or hotter? What's the blood flow to that area? 
And I, I'm ignorant about the moisture measurement and what it really is telling us about the tissue. And what about other vascular studies? Do you think there'll be any other types of vascular studies that might be helpful? For instance, I guess, MR angiography or even CT angiography. I think it ought to work. I'm just imagining clinically trying to implement that in somebody who's hypotensive in the ICU. Um, because uh, the other frustration that we have in that scenario is the skin, you know, your body's natural physiologic response is to sacrifice the skin. When people faint, they're cold and clammy for a reason. Their body physiologically has said, let's send all the blood to the brain and the kidneys because the skin can wait. And then we accentuate that with vasopressors and then get mad at clinicians when they have a skin infarction. <laughs> and everything we were doing was to make sure they didn't have brain damage or kidney failure. So uh, while I do think there are mitigation strategies we could kick in, let's be realistic that in certain people, we have made the decision to help the body uh, reroute blood flow to more important organs that are less forgiving. And at some point, we're going to have to have a conversation about whether we believe the brain is more important than your butt. We've got to get to a place that we can have an honest conversation about physiologic responses, do everything we can, and then say it wasn't enough. So even if there's a way to tell that the brain is ischemic, the butt is ischemic, we don't want the brain to be ischemic. So are we going to try to change that just because we can see that it's forming in an unstable patient with a head injury? Like I don't think so. There are some people we're going to say, I'm really sorry, but you know, your CSF pressure is up. We're worried about your brain. These are the things we have to do, or we're maximized on the vasopressors. We're just going to have to let the skin ride it out. I, I just think there's a difference between uh, elderly ladies hospitalized for UTIs and reminding them to drink and ICU patients who were probably already maximizing their care and then being blamed when it's not enough. There's there's one piece of technology that I've been using alongside, so it's got some promising, and that's near-infrared spectroscopy. Uh, so um, because it gives you a quick uh, snapshot of what you're seeing but I still have a lot more work to do. And, you know, we have the problem that they're in very difficult to access areas. Um, it's one thing trying to keep track of a patient in seated positioning, but you got to pull their pants down to look. Uh, so maybe we'll be able to get sensors that can do this so people don't have to be unclothed to do it. Maybe we'll be able to get sensors so that we don't have to turn them to look. That would be amazing. But um, I think me personally, I feel like the first step is to define the thresholds below which we can't feel confident we can keep the skin alive and then implement prevention strategies. Although I hate the word prevention because that implies we can always prevent them. I prefer mitigation strategies, implement mitigation strategies to try to minimize because there are some we could prevent if we tried a little harder on the hemodynamic side. There are others that we need to be able to say they were medically unpreventable and that's a conversation we can't have without some understanding of the thresholds. Thank you very much to both of you, Dr. Fife and Frank. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you on this podcast and it's been a real eye-opener for these crucial issues in pressure injury prevention, as well as you know looking at that angiosome concept. So I'm really grateful to both of you and we're really excited um, to get some feedback from our viewers as well, because this was a really fantastic session.
Megan, I want you to give the next one from the perspective of, of a plastic surgeon. That's the thing that we've oh, been <laughs> no, absolutely. No, this is certainly a topic I think that needs more time from us. And perhaps we'll do a master series um, event on this or even include this in our global innovation summit that we have upcoming on May 31st. So I would love to have both of you back to doing a, a full session on this as part of that global panel. Um, and, you know, because you, you guys have obviously spent a lot of time looking at this, the deep analysis of this concept and how it relates to practical clinical care. Thank you for allowing us some time to talk about it. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Thank and you. Really appreciative. And we hope to catch up with you soon. Well, that was quite an extensive podcast on the angiosomal theory of pressure injury development. And, you know, it's quite unique hearing about Dr. Fife's inside out concept, basically the loss of blood flow to a block of tissue, this angi angiosome concept. Um, it's really quite interesting. Yeah, it's an established concept, isn't it? But it's great to re revisit it several decades after it was first described. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and join us for the next one.